0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these Salt Talks is the same as our goal at our Salt Conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Spencer Jacob to Salt Talks. Uh, Spencer is an award-winning financial journalist and a former top-rated stock analyst at Credit Suisse. Uh, He edits the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column and previously wrote the Daily Investing column ahead of the tape. Uh, Prior to joining the journal, he wrote for the Lex and On Wall Street columns at Britain's Financial Times. He's also the author of a brilliant new book called The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors that captured this moment that we all experienced last year with GameStop and uh, the rising up of a swell of small investors to try to conquer uh, Wall Street. But Was that actually a revolution or was it just a blip on the radar? We'll talk a little bit uh, with Spencer about that on today's SALT Talk. But hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Uh, He's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview.
1: So first off, congratulations on the book. I got a chance to read it because you were nice enough to send me an advance copy. I also promise you that I'll be buying the book. It's out today. Uh, and you have the book behind you. Why don't you hold it up, Spencer? Oh. Because I'm all about. Here we are. I'm okay. all about self promotion. Yeah, you see how things. I
2: strategically placed that where people yeah, can see it. Was it, was, it, was it was
1: too far for old people like me that can't see. Maybe Darcy uh, can see it because he's such a young man. So there you go. GameStop, Reddit, and the small there. investors: the revolution that wasn't. So um, I want to. I want to talk about you, but I want to talk about that title for a second. So why the revolution that wasn't? It's a great title, but why'd you come up with that?
2: You know, if you looked at headlines at the time, it was like uh, small investors, stick it to the man, give Wall Street a black eye. And I mean, that's the thing that amazed me about it the most as well. I've been following financial markets, either working in them or writing about them for 29 years now. And I, I was gobsmacked, I'm sure that you were too, by what was going on. Because as you know, you couldn't have two or three hedge funds do what all these hundreds of thousands and even millions of people did, which is to gang up, sneak up on some of the smartest money managers in the world and ambush them. First of all, because it would be illegal, but it wasn't illegal the way they did it. As far as, as you know, the SEC is concerned, at least, there's no way they could go after it, which is basically they discussed it openly. Uh, they all bought options and shares in their individual accounts, and they blew these guys up. And they thought that they were going to get a twofer by sticking it to the man. It wasn't a revolution because they didn't really accomplish either one. I mean, as you know, Wall Street is a big place. Wall Street isn't two or three hedge funds. Wall Street is all the middlemen. It's lots of other hedge funds. It's lots of other mutual funds. And, and basically, the my point is that this was a great time for Wall Street. If you look at anybody who was in the business, whose information you know about publicly, they had a great first quarter of 2021 they had a real good last three quarters of 2020 for a matter as a matter of fact you know with all this this surge of money coming to the market and so that's that's why it wasn't a revolution and then the people who were involved of course some of them individually did pretty well but a lot of them i know did not do too well
1: I enjoyed reading the book because it is about the it's a David and Goliath story. uh, And it's ultimately a bee swarm attacks these Goliaths. They don't anticipate it. They get knocked down. They then they go on to recover and they reform themselves. And of course, many people that are holding these meme stocks, if you will, have been blasted by that What is your reaction to all that? What's the cautionary tale here that you would tell an investor, a hedge fund manager, a small investor, a Wall Street bets person? So I think this book
2: is of great interest to anybody who works in finance, but I didn't write it in a way that it's only comprehensible to those of us who've worked in finance for a while. I I thought about my mom and my sister, smart people who don't have any connection to it. I explain things uh, as it goes along. I don't think it slows it down too much. but uh, And it's, it's also written for ordinary people in the sense that you need to be reminded again and again that if you think that you're outsmarting Wall Street, if you're going to get very active and very excited as an individual investor, then it's not going to end well for you in all likelihood. And it's going to be a, a good time for the industry of giving financial advice and managing money and stuff like that. Not that I have anything against that industry, but it, it does line the pockets of the industry much more than usual when you have a big upswell of people. And this was no different, it's so ironic, right? Because you had people basically wanting to stick it to the man and you know, and they didn't. And if you, the weird thing is, is that it, it has continued. So it's a great thing for somebody who wrote a book about something that happened in history. It's really a period of like 10 or 11 days. It, it lasted, like it lasted a Scaramucci, right? I mean, the whole the whole episode, right? It was, it was more a week Let's and we a half. You
1: give it full credit, okay? We don't want to say a Scaramucci unless it's a full 11 days spent. So oh, it was it, like about 11 days. Okay, it was less 10, than a Scaramucci. You say okay. it's 10 11 of a Scaramucci or like 9 yeah. 11ths, but you... A it was not Scaramucci even
2: Scaramucci in terms of the, the, okay. the crazy, yeah, I crazy. Make,
1: I just want okay. to make sure we're there because Darcy's going to chime in and mention to all of our delegates that I got fired from the White House in a few seconds. But I just want full credit for my career there. OK, so. OK, so. All right. OK. Well, I, I don't want to mislead anybody. Yeah. But, yeah exactly, I mean, so,
2: so the episode that I write about did not last that long. But I go back to its roots, first of all, and it's very interesting how the pieces came together. But it's also interesting that it is, as you said, it has continued to be a phenomenon. You've had you know, lightning struck, all these things happened, all at once to make lightning strike on Wall Street. And you've had this crowd that got very excited about it and they tried to make lightning strike a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, and they've remained involved. And so it stayed a story, which is a great thing for an author, right? It's great when the thing that you're writing about is still in the news, not just because it's the anniversary when the book came out, but also because people are are agitated about it, and it continues to affect markets. But they didn't succeed the second, third, fourth, and fifth time um, because, for a variety of reasons, one is that they use the options market to a large extent to do what they wanted to do, and the options market prices in volatility. The options market sees you coming. The you know the Black Scholes formula. Prices in implied volatility. If someone thinks that things are going to be very volatile because a bunch of retail investors are interested in it, then they'll they'll jack up the price of the, the options that they sell you. And that makes it much more expensive to do this. Also, it's just not a, a media phenomenon in the same way. You don't have uh, millions of new people piling into it and opening accounts anymore. People are kind of bored with it and they've moved on to other things like crypto or they lost money and they moved on. So it's it's continued to be out there. And of course, if a bunch of people buy a stock, it's going to go up, but they're not ambushing hedge funds. And of course, there's a conspiracy, as you might know, that that they will, that if they keep on buying and keep on holding, that they're going to, which which makes me very sad. Um, I, I The reason or one reason that I, that I became a journalist Going, you know, taking a big pay cut from finance is to, to inform people about what goes on. And these people are very poorly informed because they think that if they keep on holding these stocks, that there's some phantom shorts and there's going to be the mother of all short squeezes, and that they're going to win, which is is not right, obviously.
1: And you point that out in the book. Let's go to your background for a second, because I think you are made to write a book like this. And when I was reading the book, I was like, there's very few people, Spencer, that could write this book. And I think that this book came together as beautifully as it did because of your background. So tell tell our viewers and listeners what your background is.
2: Well, I got into Wall Street by accident. So I wanted to be a historian. I got an application by accident, like literally by accident to this program at Columbia. And my undergraduate advisor said, oh, yeah, I think you should do that. We'll give you some options. I started this program, you know, met a kid the first day who had been an investment banker. I know my, my parents were immigrants. Um, you know, we didn't know anybody who worked on Wall Street. I, I had heard the word investment banker, but I had no idea what it was. This kid had been an investment banker and hated, hated it. He happened to drop how much he had made, though, coming out of college in 1986 or whatever. And... I couldn't believe it. And you know, I was concerned about money. And I said, well, how do I do that? And um, he told me all the classes I had to take when we were at Columbia, I could take all the finance classes at Columbia Business School that I wanted to. So I did. And uh, and I, I got a job working in emerging markets because I was, uh, I was bilingual um, and Eastern Europe was opening up at the time. My parents are from Hungary. I worked there as an analyst. It was very exciting. I love finance. Uh, and then after a while, it was just so much talking to clients and managing people that I got bored with it and decided that I wanted to write about finance and be able to call up smart people and talk to them about it. So I became a journalist. I wound up actually sitting next to a a longtime Wall Street Journal uh, veteran reporter uh, and her family on the plane. And she uh, talked to me about it. Two days later, I was interviewing and three days later, I was working for her. So uh, and it's been 19 years now that I've been a journalist. I'm glad I made the switch. Um, Having been on Wall Street and the kind of journalism that I do I do financial analysis and opinion. And having been an analyst, I think, makes it uh, much more comfortable for me to, to do it. Not that I know everything, but I'm I'm comfortable expressing an opinion and I, I kind of know when I'm being spun a tail by somebody who I speak with on Wall Street.
1: A new category of people. Um, we're calling them Finfluencers. Mm-hmm. So these are financial influencers on things like TikTok and YouTube. Um, it's also Silicon Valley billionaires that are smoking blunts on people's podcasts and are opining on cryptocurrencies and other sorts of things. What do you make of all of this as a traditional uh, Wall Street Journal journalist? Look,
2: if you were to, to buy everything that I suggested you should buy and sell everything I suggested you should sell, I'm not really sure how you would do um I don't think that there's anybody out there who really has a magic formula who's cracked the stock market thing or cracked this financial markets thing so I think that that very few people uh, who tell you especially for free what to do really are', are going to be able to tell you on a consistent basis but this young generation doesn't trust Wall Street and you have to think about uh how they grew up you know they grew up, seeing their parents probably suffer during the financial crisis. They have student loans that they're resentful of, a lot of them. And they think that there are two sets of rules, one for Wall Street and one for everybody else. Uh, So, it's not that they don't like rich people, they don't like rich people who wear suits and work on Wall Street very much. And then, There's this kind of cartoon villain type of person on Wall Street called a hedge fund manager that in their their imagination really is is the worst of the bunch because they sell stock short. And then if they sell a stock short like GameStop, which for young males and it was young males primarily who took part in this, uh, patronized all throughout their youth. And I've got three boys and I've driven them there about 18 billion times. Right. So they They resent it. They think that if you bet against a company, you're trying to destroy it, which is two different things, as we know, but that's not how they see it. They don't see the distinction. And GameStop was a dying business, you know, at the time that the story begins. So was AMC and so was BlackBerry and so was Nokia. That's what they all had in common. And they felt like it was like a a crusade, really, that uh, that was uh, that was noble to go and blow up the hedge fund managers who were betting against these things. And so. And then they, they a lot of them and not just those people, but many young people are very willing to take uh, advice from people they meet online, even if they're strangers uh, and that. Or if it's a Silicon Valley billionaire uh, smoking a joint online. Right. Or if it's uh, some guy who brings a bunch of SPACs to market and I'm not going to name names, but they really idolize these people because they're cool and they're rich. So young people still admire rich people. Uh, they just don't admire a certain type of rich person. And it, it is kind of dangerous, I think, to take advice from strangers on the internet. I'm not saying that your mom and dad's stockbroker at Morgan Stanley is going to give you better advice, but at least they're a professional. They're not going to tell you to put 100% of your money uh, or you know put fritter away all your savings on options premium on meme stocks. So uh, their advice at least is, is better. And I, I'm a big fan of... Uh, of fiduciaries and sound financial advice for individual investors. I think that it's a, it's a great thing to have an advisor. It's worth the money. And if you don't think it's worth the money, you can have a robo advisor, uh, which is a lot cheaper. And those are good too.
1: I think it's very well said, but you unfortunately are an old fogey Spencer. Okay. And by the way, I'm probably 10 years older than you. Okay. So I'll pass you my AARP card once, once you cross into my age realm. So, how do you make sense as an old fogey of a guy by the name of Keith Gill, aka Roaring Kitty, who you write glowingly about, who becomes the Pied Piper for more than a million people to buy the beaten down GameStop shares. And he does this and he goes on to make $50 million for himself while other people are on this roller coaster ride. How do you make sense of all that? So he is a fascinating character. And the way that I structured the book, and I think this keeps
2: it moving, is I go back and I follow the story through him, through his adventures. And 90% of that period, and it just begins in 2019, uh, he was ignored. He was worse than ignored. He was ridiculed online uh, because he kind of came across as an old folk. Of course, you didn't know who he was. You didn't see his picture until he started making YouTube videos a year into it and because uh, he was Roaring Kitty on, on YouTube and people didn't connect the two personas, uh, but he, he has a CFA. Uh, he wrote in complete sentences. Uh, people would tell him to take the money and run when he had doubled his money and say, no, that's not how you do this, and behavior of finance and biases. And he was citing Aswath Damadaran and all these other people who, these people had no, no clue who he was. And so the, the way that you get Influence on social media is to be confident, to be funny, to to be wild, especially on Wall Street bets. And he was initially the opposite. He was cerebral. He was sane. He was measured, and he was totally ignored. And then people discovered him when GameStop became this candidate for a short squeeze because he'd been there all along. He'd made this significant personal bet, basically just a gigantic chunk of his net worth. And he did it through the options market, which which amplified the, the gains that he could make. And yeah, he he made a thousand times his money at one point in the story. And he stopped posting those cerebral posts. And he began just posting memes because he's a young guy. He's 34 at the time the events take place. And um, and he started putting uh, screenshots of his E-Trade account without his name on it, of course. But all, everything else was there. And he'd do it every day. And people just couldn't believe how much A, how much money he'd made, and B, that he wasn't selling. And so that you had social proof come into it. And then he just became a hero because he didn't sell. And the gist of this whole thing was not to sell. You had to have diamond hands and not sell. So it's 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 kind of an incredible transformation that uh that he went through. And I I have to say I I admire him. Um just for his discipline, not for the fact that he led this revolution, but because uh, he didn't really lead it, but he inspired it. But I, I admire him for his uh, his gutsiness as an investor.
1: Trading apps like Robinhood and others that make it so easy for you to just log on with, quote unquote, commissionless transactions. You explain in the book that there's an underlying cost to those, quote unquote, commissionless transactions, What do you make of these trading apps? Are they good for our society? Are they good for the individual investor? Are they good for the overall markets?
2: I'm going to give you a quick answer. No, they're not. Um, I don't think they're going to go away, but they're not good. It's not a good development. I mean, I'll tell you what's a good development. If you go back decades and, you know, you remember this, and even I remember this, uh, even though I guess I'm younger than you. I think we might be the same age though. Uh, It used to cost a lot to trade a stock. Like a lot, a lot before uh, the 1970s. Certainly, uh, you know, my my dad was was a refugee, and I he he died when I was still a kid. But he's got you know briefcases full of these stock statements. Uh, he really tried to. You got fascinated by the stock market, and you know, I'm looking through those things. I just one thing I can't believe is how much commission he paid just to transact in the stock market. So it, it's a good thing. I mean that it's become much cheaper to transact and much easier to transact but it's only good up to a point right you take the friction out of something completely and you went in in late 2019 every single broker basically saw Robinhood having all the success they got one out of every two new brokerage accounts in america opened up they're small accounts to be sure but they're getting a lot of new customers and they all threw in the towel and they all went to zero commissions and they thought it'd be bad for them and it was great for them and what they didn't understand was that When you make something free that's fun, and they didn't think of their product as fun. When you make something free that's fun, then people take as much of it as they can. It's like when you leave out like a bunch of Snickers bars on Halloween instead of answering the doorbell every time. You know, some kid's gonna come and like take 10 Snickers bars and have a a stomach ache the next day. And that's kind of what these people did, is they they traded like crazy. There's an explosion in trading by people who didn't understand that there actually are costs to being very active in the stock market. Because as we know, the more often you trade and the more often you even check your investments, the worse you do. There's a direct inverse correlation. And they kind of gave people just enough rope to hang themselves. And so you can't say to a business, make it harder, make it cost something, make it cost more. I mean, I don't think you, you can put you know put the genie back in the bottle in terms of of quote-unquote free trading but i don't think that it was helpful uh to this especially to this young generation that had no experience of investing through 08 or the dot-com bubble or or previous um catastrophes in the market
1: i'm going to turn it over to john darcy who's got us beat by generation and of course as you and I both know, Spencer, his generation is smarter and wiser than our generation. So we're gonna turn it over to him in a second. But, but I wanna ask you, I wanna play the devil's advocate for a second. Um, these experiences may make people more humble. They may make them wiser and they may actually <coughs> learn about the stock market. It's a forced tuition, if you will, uh, to your point about losing money and so forth. But uh, you know, it may it may be uh, more positive than we both think. Am I? Do I have that wrong? No, I don't think you have it wrong. I think, first of all,
2: when you're talking about a group of eight to 10 million people, you can't treat them as a monolith. So you had some people who were in this just to make a buck, just to kind of, you know, ride a greater fool kind of thing. And as and, and a lot of them did. And then you had people, and it's like any movement, any political movement, the, the people who come to it late, or any religious movement, the people who come to it late are really earnest, and they really believed in sticking it to the man. I think that, that's the rough breakdown. So some people believed in both, some believed in one, some didn't care if they made money and believed in the other. And then, yeah, this generation, if they lost money or if they felt silly after the entire experience, I see it going three ways. I see some saying, wow. Wow. Well, I lost a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. It's kind of tuition in the, the school of investing for life. And they're gonna, it's going to pay off multiple times in their their life because they learned a lesson, right? So that, that's happened to many people. Uh, I hope that happens to a lot of people. And I hope that they invest and invest over the decades remaining in their sort of their productive lives, their working lives, and have a nice nest egg. But I think that's a minority, unfortunately. I, I'd like to be optimistic. And I think some people uh, will take the opposite lesson, and this is the most expensive thing you can do, which is not do anything. Just say Wall Street's crooked. I'm not going to engage with it. Forget that, right? And you think about people in 1929 who lost everything, right? Bought stocks on margin, lost every single thing, and that generation never came back to the stock market. I mean, 1932, 1933 would have been a great time to start saving money in the stock market, and no one wanted to buy stocks. You know, when the Shiller PE was like six or seven, it was the you know basically a bonanza for anybody who started to deploying, deploying capital and did so for a while. And they did not. It took another generation, right? So I'm, I'm afraid that some people are going to take that lesson, which will cost them in potential gains. And then there's some small subset that's very conspiratorial about it that continues to believe that. I don't know that Ken Griffin uh, told Vlad Tenev at Robin Hood to stop them from trading. It's all a conspiracy and doesn't matter what you say. That's what they think. And of course, it was not a conspiracy. There's a real boring explanation for what happened, but um, but they they're very bitter and, you know, they want their pound of
1: flesh. I mean, I as it was going on, even before Vlad gave his interview to Andrew Sorkin at CNBC. I knew because I have operational training at Goldman Sachs. I knew why he had to do that. I knew I understood what was going on in his risk book. Um, and so, obviously, and you pointed out beautifully you, uh, why there was no conspiracy. Let me turn it over to John Darcy. Um, but please do me a favor, Spencer. Don't say, "Oh, that's a really good question," or "That's a brilliant question," because we're in solidarity generationally against this inimical foe. So please. Don't say that. But go ahead, John.
0: I'm going to start it off with a story and I'm going to keep it anonymous because I have a a very close friend that I grew up with and actually went to college with as well. He does research in the biotechnology medical field. And so he reached out to me, you know, must have been a year and a half ago when this was just getting started. He said, have you ever looked at the stock the stock GameStop it's uh, you know this company that's been beaten down and they have this brick and mortar strategy that that's sort of dying but the short interest on the stock is you know 100 plus percent I've been on Reddit I've been watching these videos and talking to these people in this community that think this is a once in a lifetime trade and my response was you're an idiot this stock sucks the company sucks this trade will never work I'm not going anywhere near it you know we have certain restrictions at Skybridge anyways so uh, I, I steered clear of it, but you know, watching it unfold from that perspective, I had a very close friend that was involved in this this massive run up, and I was trying to counsel him along the way. But it was very unprecedented the way it happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious the environment that we were in, where everybody was working from home, including uh, my friend that I just described. How much did the pandemic play into this? Do you think the fact that people, you know, working from home, developed side hustles and and developed Uh, new hobbies, including trading and investing on places like Robinhood uh, that we talked about. How much do you think that played into it? People sort of developing these side hobbies like my friend.
2: Well, John, first of all, you seem like a very nice young man. So thank Thank you. you. Um, (laughs) um, No, the pandemic played a huge role in this. The uh, and lots of aspects of the pandemic played a huge role in this. So, you know, you had first, let's go back a little bit. Okay, Um, and I'll be quick. In 2018, you had a Supreme Court decision that allowed sports gambling in most states. Basically, it broke down the sort of the the law that only made it possible in Vegas. And so you had a large number of mainly young men. It's the one type of gambling that skews very, very young, sports gambling. Daily sports betting went to direct sports uh, or daily fantasy sports to sports gambling. And they loved it. And it was an explosion in advertising and participation. And All of a sudden, when the pandemic happened, a bunch of things happened. First of all, sports went away. We all watched Korean baseball on ESPN. Hello? Right? Uh, That was the only thing on for a few weeks, if you remember. Uh, March Madness was canceled right before it was about to start. You had all these young people uh, who were stuck at at home, either in their own apartments or in mom and dad's basement. Um, They all this money, this generation that kind of spends money as soon as it makes it. um, I hate the stereotype, but I've got couple of young men in that, <laughs> who were my sons in that demographic. And all of a sudden, they had extra money. Their, their savings ratio went way up. They got stimulus checks. They got, in some cases, they got expanded unemployment benefits. So they had more liquid cash than they'd had in a long time, that a lot more free time. There was a speculative thing that they couldn't do for a while. And then they had the stock market and the pandemic did a very unique thing to the stock market. It wasn't just that it caused a, a short bear market, it caused the sharpest descent from a record high into a bear market ever. And then it caused the sharpest ascent into a new bull market ever. So the volatility, the kind of the shape of that V, the that, you know, that descent and and bounce back was epic. And the things that bounced back were epic, right? Cruise lines and airlines, all kinds of stuff that you, Maybe you didn't know that there were going to be vaccines that worked. You didn't know any of that stuff. And people bought, you know, rental, bankrupt rental car companies. Right. And so success is a very bad teacher. And these young people opened stock accounts in droves during 2020, especially during the spring. They were following Dave Portnoy, debut day trader and people like Uh that, who had put the guy had like a month of of experience in the stock market period, would pull scrabble towels out of a bag and tell them what to buy the ticker symbol. So it was bonkers, right? They were like the Wall Street Journal interviewed some guy who doubled his money on Hertz shares, put all his money into it. It was bankrupt already. You know, I mean, Hertz actually did emerge later, you know, out of bankruptcy, but it was, you know, they didn't know that then. So, you know, it, it just was too easy. 96 during the, the year from the beginning of the bottom of the pandemic to a year later, uh, 96% 96% of American stocks rose. That's unprecedented. It was very hard to pick a loser.
0: So those are great points. And and somebody described the crypto market, for example, and, and there's some element of this in you know, financial markets more broadly. There is a a fireball of money that's flowing around through cryptocurrencies, through NFTs right now, and and really people are dictating uh, what markets become hot and what markets tend to stagnate. And you know, there's there's really no underlying value to most of the NFT market. There's certainly some NFTs uh, that have some utility in the real world and things like that, but uh, these asset markets are are booming just because the right people decide that they want to invest in them and they want to build community around these ideas. So how does does social media, Reddit, um, and those types of things, you know, they help foster a sense of identity and camaraderie among a group of people. How much of a role is this sort of mob psychology playing uh, in this trading mania? And where does it take us in terms of the way financial markets operate? Are they going to become more and more detached from fundamentals? And it's purely going to be based on technicals and and you know, mob uh, mob psychology? Uh, or Where do we go from here?
2: I don't think, and I hope that that uh, that isn't sustainable, but without a doubt, that's, uh, that's a huge part of the financial markets that we deal with. Uh, you have to be aware of it. You have to be cognizant of it. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence reported recently that 85% of hedge funds either pay for or have their own uh, programs that monitor social media on an active basis like natural language processing. They can read Reddit faster than a human can read it because they want to be prepared. And sometimes they want to take advantage and, and jump on these things. So mob psychology is really important, but it it, it is most definitely negative. And I'll tell you why. It's because let's, let's think at, at the roots of what financial markets are. It's a place to match up savers and users of capital, right? So, if you have two companies, you have one uh, that is pretty promising, but is boring and dowdy and just never gets the attention of this crowd and is trading at a, a pretty uh, dull valuation. And you have another company that, for whatever reason, a movie theater chain that gives you a free popcorn for being a shareholder, let's say, just to make something up out of thin air, right? That gets a huge valuation. Then that company's cost of equity capital is a tiny fraction of the other companies. Now, let's say that other company is the next Apple, right? That next Apple is never gonna be able to raise money uh, as cheaply as the company that has the attention of the crowd. And so it distorts the cost of capital. And that's a bad thing because the capital markets at the end of the day are a place for companies to raise money. Of course, there are companies that go out there and raise money and lose all your money. And that's part of it. There's risk involved, but, you can't just have the capital markets be uh, the greater fool theory uh, forever, because it's going to destroy what capital markets are for. I don't think that it's going to last, because you know you, you can buy something intangible um, and sell it to somebody else later, and maybe it'll maybe its value will stay permanently high. Who knows? Gold is is tangible but not useful, right? And so you know there are times when people have, have bought gold, and it's at least kept its purchasing power, I guess, right? But I, I think the, the best thing that you can own is you know, is a productive asset, you know a mine or a farm or real estate or a stock, something that's producing cash, because that's the only way to really know what something is worth, as we know, is discounting its cash flows. Uh, you don't know what those cash flows are going to be. You have to make a projection. But if, it, if that's not the reason you're buying it, then you're buying it for the wrong reason. Uh, I hate to be old fashioned, but I think that that's, that's just true.
0: Well, you're seeing it self-correct uh, in some markets, especially uh, in the tech space and sort of the Kathy Wood portfolio. There was an ETF that just came out, which is uh, SARK, which is the anti-Kathy Wood portfolio. So yeah. <laughs> certainly, plenty of people betting on uh, on this self-correcting even further in terms of, um, you know, attaching actual value to fundamentals and cash flows and things of that nature. Um, you know, I, I, let me let that lead into my next question, which is about sort of Federal Reserve policy in the current environment that we're in. So you're a finance guy. Um, How much has the Fed, you know, been the entire basis behind this run-up that we've seen in tech stocks, you know, high growth stocks with poor fundamentals in cryptocurrencies, in NFTs? Is this completely a Fed-driven phenomenon? So as the Fed tightens, is this going to completely dissipate, or do you think there's something more uh, broader culturally um, and generationally that's happening in markets?
2: Yeah, no, I think the, the Fed has had its finger on the scale of speculative assets. And let me just clarify, you know, there are people out there who will say things and maybe they they don't literally mean it, but they said the Fed is pumping money into the stock market. The Fed is pumping money into the economy. They're not literally doing that. They're doing it in a very indirect way. When you make money so cheap and you make returns on, on money so low, then part of the reason that you're doing it is to get these animal spirits going. That's why they began to do it after the financial crisis. It's just that it's 2022 now. It's not 2008. It's not 2009. And so the the doing this, it... It changes things psychologically, first of all, because there's the whole Tina trade, there is no alternative. Uh, but there's also the value that people place on very distant, very speculative cash flows. And when you're you know, whether you you understand that intellectually or you just get it intuitively or instinctively. Money being so cheap, money being almost free or basically free or having negative interest rates in many countries until recently uh, has encouraged people to bet on those very, very distant, very speculative cash flows as opposed to a steady, boring stream of them that you get over the years. And that makes speculative investments more attractive. And then since those speculative investments were doing very well through all these years, people kept sort of just trying to jump the shark and pushing it out farther and farther and farther. And I think that that it was a crucial element to the meme stock phenomenon and and to crypto and to other things. I think if you took it away, uh, then it would recede. I'm not saying they should take it away because of course there are other reasons for them doing it. Uh, but it it's a, in my opinion, is a vital ingredient.
0: Right. Um, you know, we, we talked about Reddit um, and, and the, role that it played in the GameStop uh, scenario uh but in general are you concerned about sort of the proliferation of pump and dump schemes true pump and dump <laughs> schemes you know some people think that that uh you know certain crypto markets are pump and dump schemes even blue chip crypto markets but there's certain cases now in front of the SEC about celebrities that are endorsing you know uh, meme coins or or things of that nature are you concerned about um you know, the, the proliferation of these pumping up schemes that are going to leave inexperienced investors holding the bag, uh, which is sort of the basis of your book about you mm-hmm. know, how ultimately the little guy is going to suffer from this.
2: Yeah, totally. I think that we live in a kind of a golden age of of grift, uh, except a lot of the grift never gets uh, gets prosecuted. So, um, whether it's, it's celebrities and, you know, who are taking no, no real risk themselves, right. uh, taking a risk by promoting a, a SPAC or whatever, or whether it's, it's actual offshore criminals doing a, a pump and dump, uh, and having bots post messages. And I, I, I go into that in, in the book. And I, I have to say I'm extremely disappointed as a, as a financial journalist with the, the SEC and with exchanges like NASDAQ. Uh, where they they come in very late, if at all, when there are obvious cases of fraud. And I, I won't mention the specific thing, but I, I did a uh, investigative piece that I worked on for months uh, about uh, a financier and a company that were very clearly bilking small investors and taking advantage of them. And not only was this obvious to uh, to the SEC and to anybody with eyes in their head and any knowledge, but you know, you would bring it up with, with NASDAQ. I'll tell you that much. It was a stock on NASDAQ. And NASDAQ, you, I just kind of said, I want to talk about this thing. I didn't say the name of the company. They knew exactly what it was about. They brought their legal counsel on with me. They brought all these people. Yet they kept doing things administratively that allowed it to keep happening for months and months and hundreds of millions of dollars more in losses to investors until finally a halt was put to it. And then other people copied the same exact technique again and again, and it happens all the time. So um, people say like, well, hey, you know, we're democratizing finance. You can't stop that. Yeah, you're not democratizing finance, okay? Uh, Finance is already democratized. Or people say, we have our First Amendment rights, and there may be bad eggs that say things on social media. They're always bad people, but whatever. No, I think that I I don't want you to put, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like I said, but you can put up guardrails for people. The SEC needs to do its job and do it more quickly, and other people need to do their job. I mean, people are are really being taken advantage of, and it, it's uh, it really bugs me.
0: Right. And you know, talking about things self-correcting, Robinhood is is very central to this story because it's the the platform that onboarded a lot of these young investors and created this gamification. Uh, you know, they frame it as democratizing investing. Um, you know, Other people might frame it as, as sort of in a predatory way, luring young people into using things like leverage and, and excessive risk uh, with money. But Robinhood itself, the stock at one point was booming. It was above $70 per share. Mm-hmm. Today, it trades in the low teens as we record this. So do, do you think this is going to be self-correcting where either through regulation or just a recognition that, you know, Robinhood, by providing free transactions and things, isn't going to be able to commercialize? Their business. Uh, But what do you make of Robinhood's general fall from grace? Why it's happened and what the future is for the platform and platforms like it?
2: No, I think that the world just moved on a little bit from Robinhood. I think they can can come back. Uh, I think that's the reason that it fell from grace is because the peak period, the best time for Robinhood was during this meme stock squeeze. So if you look at how they made money in late 2020, and then especially early 2021, when this was going on, the, the height of the GameStop squeeze, it was uh, first and foremost, through selling their customers' trades to wholesalers or market makers, uh, which meant the more you traded, the better they did. So they had a very strong incentive to uh, to have you be very active as one of their customers. They uh, made a lot of money, disproportionate amount of money, relative to the dollars involved in um, in selling options trades to market makers. And then that morphed into cryptocurrency. In the next quarter, Dogecoin was their biggerer and stocks became less important, but there always has to be a new thing. And I think people moved on and they started uh, opening accounts at Coinbase or, or wherever. And so the speculative fervor died down uh, in stocks, but it's still there. It's still pretty bubbly uh, in, in historical terms. It just, you know, Robinhood was, was valued on, you know, it's a hockey stick going up. That's what people buy a stock. They buy it as a hockey stick going up and it really looked like it was going up. So they they did their initial public offering at a time when optically they were doing the best. They're on top of the world and not that they were making a lot of money yet, uh, but they were going to make a ton of money. And that's, that's I think, basically, you know, why, it, you know, because the, the average revenue that they made Per user had already peaked and was coming down, and they they might come back because they might be able to sell those people some really useful financial products, like um, you know give them debit cards or open IRAs or uh, have a kind of a Robo advisor or something like that, something that uh, that really is useful to those people. So maybe they'll they'll reinvent themselves. I don't know.
0: Right. And last question before we let you go is, what do you think the long-term impact, if any, is going to be of this episode, uh, both for individual investors and for Wall Street? How do you think it's forever changed the way a hedge fund manager thinks about risk management or how individuals think about managing their personal portfolio?
2: Well, I think it definitely changed the way that uh, hedge fund managers think about risk management. They're watching. They're ready uh, not to say that they won't get uh you know caught with their pants down in the future because there's a lot of hubris uh in um people who manage a lot of money and there was uh this time of course, and there will be next time. so there'll be some other thing but in terms of of the the effect more broadly on financial markets, you know, the one thing is like that there's never anything new it just has like a new flavor to it. And this was the latest flavor. I think that, uh, when people get very excited and very active, um, in financial markets, when the broad public gets excited, then it's a good time for wall street. And, you know, when you look back on it later, you say, wow, it wasn't really a great time for the general public and rules come out of it too. Usually the United States, at least, you know, you had the sec come out of the 1929 crash and you had Sarbanes-Oxley come after, uh, and and analyst settlements come out after the dot-com bubble and you had the Volcker rule come out of uh, 2008 and the CFPB. And I think that uh, you'll get some new rules, but I suspect that the new rules will be like the generals fighting the last war because it always is. And so and and they might even be destructive. And, for example, you might put because short sellers, for whatever reason, they got, got beaten up in this they might come out with uh, rules that make it even more difficult to be a short seller during a time when it's really been difficult already to make money as a short seller. Uh, They didn't cause this. They kind of were, you know, they were part of the story, but they weren't the cause of the story. And I mean, most short sellers are, are honest people. They're not out there distorting or putting out fake stories. They are, you know, providing really a vital function not that they're angels but the existence of short sellers whether it's dedicated short sellers or people who have shorts as part of their portfolio are very important to mom and pop you need people to be out there because you need prices to be as correct as possible if you're not trained in wall street then you open up your yahoo finance app and you see a price and you're wondering if it's a correct price and it it might be a completely incorrect insane uh, you know, unjustified price. If a short seller can't do something about that, then the possibility that you'll buy that stock and think that it's okay and then lose eighty percent of your money or hundred percent of your money, if it's it's Enron, uh, is there, right? So I, I think that the rules that'll come out of this won't really help, unfortunately. Uh, what I wish would come out of this are, are more guardrails to protect it. Even if they don't want it, they they need it. They they need guardrails. To protect themselves from uh, from the industry and from their own worst impulses.
0: Well, one thing that came out of this episode was a great book that I think is very educational for people that are looking to learn about what happened here with GameStop and and let it be a cautionary tale. I think, as you alluded to earlier, it's hard for people to fully understand um, you know financial markets without experiencing it themselves. You know, either experiencing the tremendous highs of a big winner or the pain of of getting fleeced. But uh, I think your book does a great job of educating people. So thank you for writing it. And Spencer, it was a pleasure having you on. Again, the book is called The Revolution That Wasn't, uh, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Anthony, you have a final word for Spencer before we let him go?
1: Yeah, and, and he's heard on the street. He, he is the famous heard on the street at the Wall Street Journal. And we've learned a lot from you over the years, Spencer. It's a fantastic book. And for me personally, I'm glad it was the revolution that wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't ready for these meme stocks to take over uh, the hedge fund industry. So um, I'm. I'm glad that that happened actually. But I. I thought the book was great. I don't have the actual copy, but why don't you hold it up again one more time before we okay leave the show? Yeah, because you know I love self-promoting. There it is, and uh, and we wish you great success with the book. Thanks for joining us on Salt Talks.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Great questions, guys.
0: Thank you again, Spencer. And thank you, he everybody, made both for coming. To he met both of us. Great
1: precious <laughs> from both of us. <laughs> of course, of
0: course, not just the I latter mean. half. But uh, thank you again, everybody, for tuning into today's Salt Talk with Spencer Jacob from the Wall Street Journal. Just a reminder if you missed any part of this Salt Talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website, uh, salt.org backslash talks, or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. In podcast form, we're also available uh, on any app that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, we're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks again. I think this is a very educational read—the uh, book that Spencer uh, wrote about uh, just the the dangers of financial markets and making sure that you're educated about risks before you uh, jump into some of these frenzies that start to build up. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.